Welcome to the Vision Church Podcast. We're so thankful that you're taking some time today to listen. We pray that this week's message challenges you to press in deeper with your pursuit of Christ. Our mission at Vision Church is to go and make disciples. You can help us in this mission by rating this podcast and sharing it with the world via social media. We want to reach the lost by raising up the found. Thank you again for tuning in today and enjoy the message. Well, today, if you've got your Bible with you or your phone, go ahead and turn to the book of Jude. Jude only has one chapter, and we're going to be looking at verse 3 here in just a few moments. But if you'll go ahead and turn to that. Um, Today, we're actually continuing in our sermon series and finishing our sermon series, How to Share My Faith. And I have the blessing today of talking to you about how to share your faith with a Mormon. Now, I'm using the term Mormon because uh, it is the more commonly known term to describe what is formally known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I'm only using that term. It is of no disrespect to anyone who is a part of the Mormon Church. It is only because it is the more commonly known term. Before, as I'm going into the message today, there are a couple of things I want to make sure that we're highlighting. And the first and foremost of that is that Anytime that we are sharing our faith, and I don't care who you're sharing your faith with, is that if you are motivated by anything other than love, then you are out of line. Because us sharing our faith is not an opportunity for us to try to get someone else to give up what they believe. It is our opportunity to try to help someone else see the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not a chance for me to try to deconstruct someone else's beliefs It is my opportunity, and here's the way Pastor Tyson often says it, it is not your job to make the gospel work. It is only your job to proclaim it and to allow the Spirit of God to do what only He can do. Amen? So as we're going into this today, I want you to know that the genuine motivation of my heart is one of love. I also want to make sure that you're equipped Because see, here's the thing is Pastor Tyson and I, we get this really odd view. And I say we, I mean the the greater church of Jesus Christ. We get this odd view of how ministry is supposed to work. We think, okay, well, I come to church on Sundays and I support the church and I'm here and I serve. And then I go home and Pastor Tyson and Pastor Brett, they do the ministry all week. But see, that's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that that pastors and teachers are given as a gift to the body of Christ for one purpose, to to equip the entire body of Christ to do the work of the ministry. See, it's not supposed to be just Pastor Tyson and I doing the ministry. We are supposed to lock arms and make sure that the gospel that we are preaching inside of these walls does not stay inside of these walls. And that's the purpose of this entire series. It's not to try to educate you so that you can have some fun facts and some fun arguing points with those who may believe differently than you. It is so that you can be equipped to be used by the Spirit of God in the lives of those who don't know the saving grace of Jesus Christ. So what I want you to do is I'm going to give you a couple of quick bullet points that are pointers for sharing your faith regardless of who you're sharing your faith with. If you're not taking notes, I would encourage you to do so. Grab your, I don't care if you're right on your arm, your neighbor's arm, just write something down. It's going to help you remember it, I promise. First and foremost, I need you to realize that it is absolutely critical that you define terms. And here's what I mean by that. 
It is very easy when you're discussing your faith with someone who does not believe the same way that you believe that you can start talking past each other. And what, that, what typically causes that is that you're using the same words, but you mean different things. So you may say Jesus, and you mean the second member of the, or the second person of the Trinity, the only Son of God, whereas someone of the Islamic faith may say Jesus, and they just mean a good prophet. So you have to realize that just because you're using the same terms doesn't mean that you mean the same thing. So it's important that you ask questions and that you listen. I had an old business mentor back when I was in corporate America that used to tell me, Brett, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You should be listening at least twice as much as you're talking. And that was a real challenge for me. The other thing that I want to make sure that I'm pointing out is that we must come to a point where we realize and we affirm that there is truth. There is not your truth, my truth, our truth. We're all going to have our own truth. There is one truth. And the very basic tenets of logic tells us that if there is one truth, that anything that is opposite or comes against that truth is therefore false. I used to think that that was common sense, but then I started to realize that common sense wasn't really common practice anymore. The other thing is that we, and I said this a little bit already, is we have to focus as Christians on presenting the gospel, not on trying to dismantle someone else's faith. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't go into a conversation prepared. It doesn't mean that you don't know why you believe what you believe. But we must have our focus as showing people the truth. And here's an interesting story that was once relayed to me. I do not know the complete truth of this, but someone has told me that it's, that it's very much in line. The U.S. Secret Service is trained to identify false or fake or forged currency. That is one of the things that their agents are trained to do. And one of the ways that the U.S. Secret Service trains their agents to identify forged currency is that they show them nothing but genuine, authentic currency. And all they ever study is the real thing. They don't try to go through and show them every different way that a bill or a coin can be forged. They show them what the real thing is. And they get so well acquainted with the real thing that as soon as they spot something that's a forgery or a fake, they can instantly see it. Because they know what the truth is, they can immediately tell a lie. So as we're presenting the faith, it is our goal and our heart should be to present the truth, not to sit and dismantle every single lie. Does that make sense? So the, the last thing that I want to specifically highlight is that we as Christians are called to be prepared to give a defense for the joy that is within us. That's the way Peter says it. It is not your responsibility to make a decision for Jesus Christ and cling on to the third row. No offense for y'all who are in the third row. Cling on to the third row until Jesus comes back again. It is your responsibility to continue to grow in your knowledge, not just of what you believe, but of why you believe it. And in growing in the knowledge of the truth, then you are allowing the Spirit of God to then use you to actually go forth with the message of the gospel. But if, you, if the last thing, and I, this is the only way I know to say this, if the last thing you can talk about that you've learned about Jesus was when you got saved, and you got saved any time longer than like the past month, then we need to have a conversation. Because I believe what we've been doing in the church of Jesus Christ is that we have, in the worldwide church of Jesus Christ, is that we have been focused on making converts instead of making disciples. 
And so until we start focusing on making disciples, we're not going to be able to share what the faith is. Now, I want to share with you why Pastor Tyson said that I was going to be sharing on how to share your faith with a Mormon. So I was actually uh, born into the Mormon church. From the time that I was born until I was 17 years old, I was a very devout Mormon. Paul says he was a Pharisee among Pharisees. I was a Mormon among Mormons. And um, I was a fourth generation Mormon. My great grandfather converted to the Mormon church and helped establish the Mormon church in Northeast Tennessee. And at 17 years old, I heard a Baptist deacon share the Roman road of salvation in a King James Bible. And the reason I say King James Bible is because as a Mormon at that time, the only Bible that I believe that held most of the truth was the King James Bible. And we figured, you know, if it was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for us. Wow, y'all, okay, y'all got to write that down. You'll get it whenever you get home. Um, But he shared the Roman road of salvation using a King James Bible. And I left that that, that meeting or that, that opportunity to hear the gospel. And I went home and I started reading in my, in the new Testament because something wasn't adding up. There was something that he had said that was not in line with what I believed and had been taught for my entire life. And I read the entire new Testament at the end of it. I went to my mom and I said, mom, I can no longer be a Mormon. I'm sorry. I don't know what I am. I don't know what it means. I don't know what the end result is here, but I can no longer be a Mormon. And I'm sure you're aware that that did not go over very very well. I was the oldest of six children, and you can do the math. I actually ultimately ended up falling into really full-blown, very devout atheism. I was what I would call an evangelistic atheist. I was very devout on making sure that if you said you believed in God, that I would show you why that was dumb. Um, I was at that time, dumb, Um, but I was a very devout atheist, and through a series of really miraculous events, um, God brought me to a place where he offered me an opportunity to accept him as Lord and Savior, and he did it, in my opinion, in an odd way, which God tends to do. We have our ideas of how God should work, and then he smacks us with how he's going to. Um, he, He caused me to have an experience with him through a, peer, through a group of people that he had put into my life that I could not deny the experience. But I was the person who humored myself as an intellectual. So, you know, most people are like, oh, you know, I, I kind of came to this intellectual belief that God didn't exist. And slowly through apologetics, I came back to the faith. No, no, I had come to a very definite belief that God did not exist. And in in a moment and an experience, God caused me to experience the saving grace of Jesus Christ in a way that I could no longer deny. And I had to let my intellect, quote unquote, catch up, which to me was odd, but that's the way he chose to do it. And I share that because I am not sharing with you what the specifics and how to share your faith with a Mormon from a place of just theoretical knowledge. I was a Mormon, like I said, for 17 years. And at the end of that 17 years, God took me on a very interesting path. So here I want to share with you a couple of facts just about the Mormon church. Like I said, the Mormon church is known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is their formal name. They were founded April 6th, 1830 by a man by the name of Joseph Smith. They currently have 17 million members worldwide. The reason the Mormon church started is because Joseph Smith claimed that he had a vision of God the Father and the Son, both in bodily form, we'll come back to that in a moment, where they both told him that they would use him to restore the one true church to the world. 
They told him, according to the Mormons, that, the, that all of the churches at that time were an abomination in the sight of God and that the power and spirit of God had been removed from the earth since shortly after the time of the, the death of the apostles. Shortly after this, and I'm given a very high-level synopsis here, Joseph was given, according to his account, a set of golden plates by an angel that supposedly recorded the story of the people of God in the Americas. These plates were only ever translated by Joseph Smith from behind a curtain, and there were only a select few people who could ever actually see the plates. And what Joseph would do is that he would verbally translate these plates, and someone else would be scribing for him what it was that he was saying was the translation. After this translation, these plates were supposedly handed off, handed back to this angel, um, and that was at the command of God. And from this time, the Mormon church holds that the, this angel is in possession of these plates. And these plates that were translated supposedly have become what we now know as the Book of Mormon. And I, I'm going through all this and I need, you to, I need you to hear me. Because when we're walking through these things, whether it's how to share your faith with a Mormon, how to share your faith with a Jewish person, how to share your faith with a Muslim, I need you to understand that this is not a game. This is not just something that Pastor Tyson and I thought would be a really entertaining sermon series for you to be able to come in and be entertained on Sunday and then go do what you need to do for the rest of the week. Because what I need you to know is that eternity hangs in the balance. And the challenge with the American church today is we often think, well, that's somebody else's eternity. That's not my eternity. So I'm not going to be as fired up about it. I'm not going to make sure that I'm actually being obedient to the call of Jesus Christ on my life to go forward and share the gospel. So I'm going to sit back and let somebody else worry about that. Somebody else will step into that gap and make sure that people hear the gospel. Somebody else is going to make sure that the sermon is preached on Sunday. Somebody else is going to go forward and maybe it's go door to door like the Mormon church does and make sure that somebody hears it. So I need you to understand the gravity of the situation that we're talking about. Now, one of the number one questions that I get asked over and over and over, both by members of my family and members of the Mormon church, as well as congregants here at Vision Church, is, are Mormons Christian? Seems like a pretty basic question, right? And the question often revolves around, well, you know, Brett, and you'll hear this from those who are members of the Mormon church, well, Brett, the, the name of the church says Jesus Christ, and if you have a conversation with someone who's a member of the Mormon church, they will tell you, well, yeah, Jesus Christ is my Savior, and of course I'm a Christian. I'm, we're just another denomination of Christianity. So I want to answer this question in short, and then I want to give you a little bit more context, okay? So are Mormons Christian? And I need you to know I mean this in love, especially the online audience. I mean this in love. But no, Mormons are not Christian. And here is how I'm going to show you that is the case. I'm going to go way back and I'm going to nerd out for just a minute. There's going to be like three of you that are going to be excited about me nerding out and the rest of you are just along for the ride. Sorry, I've got the mic, so just enjoy it. We're going to go all the way back to the year 325 AD. Because in the year 325 AD, the, emperor, the Roman emperor Constantine legalized Christianity. And he brought together a group of the leaders of the Christian church. And he said, I need you, if I'm going to legalize this, I need you to tell me what it means to be a Christian. And so they came together and the output of this 
meeting, what's referred to as a council, um, was there were two major things that came out of this council. The first one is referred to as the Nicene Creed. I'm going to talk about that here in just a moment. And the second one was that they dealt with what is now known as the Arian heresy. Now, the Arian heresy was a heresy of the early church that one person at this council believed, and they rebuked him, and he actually uh, was removed from leadership because of this. The heresy was that Jesus Christ was a created being, and that he was not the second member of the Trinity, but that he was a created being that God sent to pay for the, the sins of the world. And the leaders of the church said, no, 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 that's not the faith that we were given by the apostles. That's not the same as the faith that we were given by the apostles. So they removed him from leadership, and they shored up what's known as the Nicene Creed. And if there was one thing, one very core thing that I could say that the Nicene Creed revealed, and I want to emphasize it revealed it, these people did not come together and vote by a 51-49 split on what was going to be the Christian faith. They came together and said, what is the faith that we received from the apostles that we have been preaching as a church for 300 years? We've just been doing it underground. So they came together and there's one main thing that they came together and said is that there is one God who we as Christians serve and he exists in three persons. Now that sounds very fundamental to us, right? Like, of course, Brett, that's the Trinity. We call it the Trinity. But I want you to understand that that's not fundamental to Mormons and we're going we're gonna to handle that here in just a moment. But why does it matter? Why does it matter whether or not that a Mormon would believe the exact faith of the early Christian church and the faith that we've been handed down in biblical Christianity? You thought I forgot about Jude chapter 1 verse 3, but we're going to go back to there. Here's what Jude says. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is emphasizing that there was a faith, one faith, one truth that was handed down through the generations to um, the early Christian church. Here's the way Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you have put up with it too readily. Here's what he said in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached to you, let him be accursed." Here's how, here's how emphatic Paul felt about this. That's verse 8. In verse 9, he comes back and he says, as we've said before, like a second ago, so now I'm going to say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I feel like this was Paul's opportunity to say, hey, this is for you in the back that weren't listening, right? That's how, that's how an old preacher would say it now. So what this tells us is that the critical points of the Christian faith boil down to really one succinct phrase. And it really is, who is God and what does he require of you? Because if you look at that very basic principle, you can pretty much know whether or not someone is a Christian, right? So we're going to start with God. Now, before we go into God the Father and what the Mormon church teaches and believes about who God the Father is, 
and who God is, I want you to understand that the primary, this is, this is something that, that really broke my wife's brain. My, my wife was raised Protestant, and the first time I helped her understand this, she, um, she could not get it. It was just like, this does not make any sense to me. But the authority in the Mormon church rests primarily with the church itself, with the organizational structure of the church. We as biblical Christians would hold that this is our authority, that everything that we say and do should be founded upon the authority of the word of God. And if my life or my belief is out of alignment with this word, then I'm wrong. And I'm going to tell you right now, if your life or your belief is out of alignment with this word, congratulations, you're wrong. I love you. But to a Mormon, the primary authority is in the Mormon church and in the leadership of the Mormon church. And the reason I'm telling you this is because as I'm going through, you're going to notice, I'm going to say, well, hey, this Mormon leader said this to define their doctrine. And to us... We can often look at that and be like, well, you know, that might have been just some other crazy pastor who was kind of going a little bit off the rails. Not to the Mormon church. If a Mormon leader in the Mormon church says, this is the doctrine, then it is just like if I were to tell you, this is what the Bible says. That's the level of authority that those who are leading the Mormon church has. So now we're going to dive into what the Mormon church believes about God. So there's a very basic theology that the Mormon church holds when it comes to who God the Father is, and it's a theology called eternal progression. Look at your neighbor and say eternal progression. Look at him and say it's not right. So eternal progression is basically this idea or this theology that we as beings are eternally progressing and getting better or worse, or we're constantly moving towards something, right? So here's what the Mormon church would say about who God is. And I'm going to break this down and then I'm going to come back to it. As former Mormon church president Lorenzo Snow famously put it, as man is now, God once was. As God is now, man may become. So what the Mormon church emphatically teaches is that at one point in history in a different universe that the person that we know as God the Father was once a man in that universe and that he eternally progressed into becoming a God. They would also hold that you and I, as human or mankind, can one day progress to becoming gods ourselves through the obedience to the Mormon doctrines. Here's the way Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon church, put it. He said, quote, I say, if you were to see him, him being God, today, you would see him like a man in physical form. See, the Mormon church, one of the big doctrines for the Mormon church is that God the Father has a physical body because they believe that he was once a human. And if he was once a human, then he must have a physical body that's been redeemed much like Christ's body. Here are my challenges with that. If we go to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verse 24, here's what Jesus said of God the Father himself. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus emphatically held that God the Father was a spirit and was only a spirit. The second challenge I have with this is if we go to Isaiah chapter 44, starting in verse 6. Thus says the Lord, 
the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. In verse 8, it actually goes on in, this, in the book of Isaiah, in verse 8 of chapter 44, God goes on to say, are there any other gods? I know not of any of them. So if we hold to, this, to the basic idea that the Bible is true and that what God has revealed about himself is true, I have to say that there seems to be a difference here, to state the obvious. The other thing is that, that if God was once a man then in order to hold that belief, you would have to believe that God had a beginning, right? Because if he was once a man, he was once created rather than creator. But here's what the Bible says. Malachi 3, 6, and I don't know any other way to put this any simpler. For I, the Lord, do not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. Not I get better as it goes, but I, the Lord, do not change. Here's the way James, the brother of Jesus, put it in James chapter 1, verse 17. The father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. See, I don't know any other way to put this, but I did hear a philosopher, a Christian philosopher put it this way. And it's a little bit of a complicated way to think about it. But when I really wrapped my brain around it, it kind of rocked my world. And what he says that God is pure actuality. Or another way to say this is God has no potential. Now, that may check you for a second. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That sounds like a little bit, you know, we're in this self-help culture and I've got, a, I've got all of this potential. So how can I say God has no potential? Well, let's go back to Moses and the burning bush. When God chose to introduce himself to his people by his name and Moses said, who am I supposed to say sent me? What did God say? He said, you tell them I am that I am. Because what God was making very clear is that there is no change. He said it again, Malachi 3, for I, the Lord, do not change. Because he is as much God as he could ever be right now, and he's never been more or less God. He is, by definition, eternal. So I think I've pretty conclusively shown at least at this point, that there is a difference between who a Mormon would say God is, the character and nature of God, versus what biblical Christianity would say about the character and nature of God. So let's set that one down for a moment, and now let's look at what Mormons believe about Jesus Christ. So here is how the Mormon church would regard Jesus Christ. They believe that Jesus is a created being, that he is the first spiritual offspring of heavenly father and heavenly mother. I'll circle back to that. Don't worry. Mormons believe that Jesus and Lucifer are spiritual brothers. So here's the thing with, with this spiritual brother, first spiritual offspring, is that Mormons believe that you and I existed as spirits prior to coming to earth. That we were sent to earth as like a test to see if basically we could earn godhood. And so what they believe is that because this, the God the Father that they believe in, they call him Heavenly Father, was once a man that he and his wife, who was his wife at, uh, on whatever world it was that he lived on before, and I'm not saying that flippantly, I'm just saying that's what it was, um, that they are consistently, eternally reproducing themselves in spiritual offspring. And that the first spiritual offspring that they had was Jesus Christ. And that he is our spiritual brother, without question, according to the Mormon church. 
So that's the reason that they would hold that Jesus is the first spiritual offspring of, of God the Father and his wife, and that he is the brother, the spiritual brother of Lucifer. The Mormons would hold that Jesus is the only begotten son. But by begotten, what they mean is that he is the only son that God or heavenly father physically conceived with the Virgin Mary. They believe that Jesus is the savior, but he's not a savior who did everything for mankind to restore our relationship with God, but rather he conquered physical death for mankind and he served as a perfect example showing us what we need to do in order to follow the commands of the Mormon church and he makes up the difference. And we're going to talk about that here in just a second. Here is what biblical Christianity teaches. Biblical Christianity teaches unequivocally that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is equal to the Father and the Spirit. We call this the Trinity. I don't care what you call it, but it is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal. They are also co-eternal. They are one in power, in essence, and in will. The other thing that biblical Christianity will teach you is that, God, that Jesus is eternal, how do I know that? Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. John 1 tells us that Jesus was not created, but that he is creator. Here's what John 1 says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. I just wish somebody in here give God praise for Jesus Christ. So unquestionably in John 1, it's very clearly laid out that Jesus was the one who, cre who was created, or excuse me, who created all things. All things were created by him and through him. And when you look at the, when it says in the beginning was the word, later in the same chapter of John, it very clearly tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and that that word was Jesus Christ. So if you see that right there, there's a, there's a pretty big difference. Now, what did Jesus say of himself? You'll often hear, well, you know, Jesus never said he was God. And that's a lie. Let me show you where Jesus said he was God. Let's put John 8, chapter, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 58 up. Here's what Jesus said to them, them being the Pharisees. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said, I am, here's what the response of the religious leaders were. Verse 59, so they picked up stones to throw at him. This was not a friendly game of baseball. <laughs> they were going to kill him. Why? Because he had just put himself on the same level as God. Because there's only one other place where the name I am was used, and we just talked about it, when Moses was introduced to the God of Israel. So what Jesus is saying without question is he says, before Abraham was, I am. He is showing himself to be God. Here's what I know. is over and over and over again throughout the entire council of scripture. Jesus warned us. Peter warned us. Paul warned us. James, John, that there would be false Christs that would arise. And the reason that they so emphatically preached against the false Christs that would arise is because there was one major thing that the false Christ couldn't do, and that was the false Christ lacked the authority and the ability to save you. 
And so they warned against it, saying this is going to come up over and over and over when they're going to present themselves like Jesus, but they are not, in fact, who he is. And we know very clearly what the nature and character of Jesus was just by reading the Bible. But the Mormon church is going to hold what I told you about Jesus. And so I would say that at this point, I can say pretty conclusively that these are two different Jesuses. The reality is it's only the Jesus of the Bible that has the ability, has the strength, and that had the ability to overcome death, hell, and the grave. See, God knew that you couldn't do enough, so he sent someone who could pay the price on your part. And so that's the only Jesus that has the ability to save you and transform your life. So now we're going to take this and we're going to set it to the side for a moment. We've got a different Jesus and a different God. Now let's start to talk about the teachings, the specific teachings of the Mormon church. First and foremost, the only reason the Mormon church says that it exists is because there was a great apostasy or falling away of the Christian church. They would hold that shortly after the apostles that the spirit and the power of God was removed from the earth. Here's my challenge with that. If we go to Matthew chapter 16 verse 18. Here's what Jesus said to Peter after Peter just recognized who Jesus was and said that he was the Christ. He said, I tell you, Peter, excuse me, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The rock that Jesus was talking about was not Peter himself. The rock that Jesus was talking about was the revelation of who he was. And Jesus was saying, on the rock of this revelation of who I am, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's what Jesus said. One of the last things he said before he ascended and left his disciples here on earth in Matthew 28. This is immediately following the Great Commission. He said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, here's what I want to tell you. And I mean this with all the love in my heart. There is one of two things that is happening here. Either Jesus Christ lied and he was not going to be with his church until the end of the age or Joseph Smith did. And I don't say that out of hate or out of malice, but what I'm telling you is unequivocally over and over and over in scripture, Jesus promised that when he left, that he was not going to leave us alone until he came again. But Joseph Smith started the Mormon church on the premise that he had. Now, I want to circle back to the belief about the Bible. What, is the, what do the Mormon church believe? What does the Mormon church believe about the Bible? The first thing is their articles of faith, which is kind of like how they lay out what they believe, um, says that they believe that the Bible is the word of God as far as it is translated correctly. And I'm like, well, yeah, okay, I can get behind that. The problem is, that they would hold that the Bible that you and I have is not currently translated correctly, but they cannot generally tell me what verses are not translated correctly. So if you're sharing your faith with a Mormon, one of the things that I would encourage you to do is lay your Bible in front of them and say, tell me which verses aren't translated correctly, and we won't use them for the sake of this conversation. Generally speaking, that's not going to happen. They're not going to have an answer for that. And at least in my experience, more often than not, the verses that are not translated correctly are the ones that would come against or contest the Mormon faith. I'm going to put on the screen very briefly here um, a, passage of, a passage from the Book of Mormon. And this is from the book of 2 Nephi, from the Book of Mormon, chapter 29. This is verse 3 and verse 6. This is supposedly God the Father speaking. 
And it says, And because my word shall hiss forth, many of the Gentiles shall say, A Bible, a Bible, we've got a Bible, and there cannot be any more Bible. And in verse 6, he says, Thou fool that shall say, A Bible, we have a Bible, and we have no need, more, or we, have, we need no more Bible. So what the Mormon church is saying is that for those of us who say the canon of Scripture is closed, that this is complete, and we'll talk about where the Bible talks about this, that if you believe that this canon of Scripture is complete and that you're going to reject the Book of Mormon, that you are a fool for saying you only ha- that you already have a Bible. Here's what 2 Timothy says. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, all Scripture, and he's referring to what we say is the, Christ- or what the Christian Bible is, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We call this the sufficiency of Scripture, which means everything I need to live, to pursue godliness, is here. And because of that, the canon is closed. Now, here's what, and we've said this over and over and over throughout this series, and I hope, it, I hope it drives home for you. Here's what John the Revelator says in the book of Revelation. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book that if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. I want to point out also as a side note that in this verse or in this passage from the Book of Mormon that the Mormon church would hold that this passage was written in the Americas by a Native American somewhere in the year, somewhere between the years of 559 and 545 B.C. However, if you historically look at the word Bible, the word Bible was not used to describe what we know as the Christian canon today until somewhere between the 2nd and 4th century A.D. So somewhere between 7 and 900 years, supposedly, before the Bible was ever referred to as the Bible, the, this Native American has originally written all of this about a Bible, having no idea what a Bible was. Now, let's talk about salvation, because we've talked about who is God, and now let's talk about what he requires of us. First and foremost, the Mormon reward for salvation, and I'm going to hit this fast, so take quick notes. Heaven, according to the Mormon church, consists of three kingdoms, the celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. Everybody except for a small handful of people will make it into one of these kingdoms of heaven. Joseph Smith held that the lowest of these kingdoms of heaven was a thousand times greater than life on earth. Those in the highest kingdom will live with, what they, with who they call heavenly father and Jesus. And that person, in order to be there, a person must have participated in the Mormon temple ordinances to qualify. Those who live there are the ones who are believed to progress to godhood. I will mention that this sounds eerily similar to me to a passage of Scripture in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5 where the serpent says to Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The very fruit of Mormon salvation is supposedly the same promise that the serpent made to Eve. Here's the way Paul put it. 
And you want to talk about a prophetic word in the Bible. Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere, pure, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul knew what was coming down. And he specifically calls out the deception of Eve. The other kingdoms of, of heaven will be populated by less faithful Mormons or moral non-Mormons. Um, the only ones who will, go, who will not be in these kingdoms of heaven are those who have committed murder and those who are apostate from the Mormon church. Here's what the Bible says your, your reward for salvation is. In Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1, John the Revelator says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. See, your reward for your faith in Jesus Christ is not that you get praise. It's not that you get power or adoration or glory or get to do whatever you want as your own God. Your reward for your faith, for your faith in Jesus Christ is that you are restored into relationship into the presence of the almighty God that created you. And you live in the completion that he designed you for. And I really wish I could get somebody in Vision Church to give God praise that he's going to do it. Amen? Lastly, I'm going to go into, as I'm closing this out, how to obtain salvation. What's the difference between what the Mormon church believes about how to be saved versus how we, are, how we as biblical Christians believe? The Mormon's third article of faith says this, We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Here's the way that the Book of Mormon puts it in 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23. It says, For we labor diligently to write to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God, for we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all that we can do. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 8, he said, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know, when it comes to salvation, here's a direct quote of one of the leaders of the Mormon church. He says, quote, You cannot receive unconditional salvation simply by declaring your belief in Christ. And the reason that breaks my heart, and I can definitively say that unfortunately Mormons are not Christian, and it is our job to share the truth of the gospel with them, is because here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 10, starting in verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hey, if you enjoyed today's podcast, click that subscribe button, share this podcast on social, or even take a screenshot from your story and tag us. We'd love to hear how the Lord is using this podcast to bless your life. 
You can send an email to info at visionchurch.com or you can DM us on social with a story of how God is moving in your world. Also, we'd like to thank those who invest in our ministry financially. It's because of your sacrifice that we are able to publish this every week. If you'd like to join in giving to our ministry, you can click the link in the description or visit visionchurch.com and click the Give tab. Thanks again for listening. God bless.